Good morning, Northwestern. You guys doing all right today? All right. Well, um, today we have the privilege of um, hearing from Dr. Jim Yost. Dr. Yost and Kathy Yost are being honored as the alum of the <coughs> excuse me, the alum of the year in coming up. And um, I just want to tell you, just from personal experience with um, with Jim, it's been such a blast to get to hear him, get to learn from him. So today we get a chance to, uh, to, to talk a little bit with him, to hear about his life. So please help me give a warm welcome to the alumnus of the year, Dr. Jim Yost. So we're, we're, we're gonna do this uh, conversational style, right? Uh, so, um, I, I wish I had a cup of coffee here, but uh, because you know that's how I roll. Hey, um, by the way, I know he's a, he's been an anthropologist for uh, almost sixty years, and you just told me that you're you said you're uh, younger than you look. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I want to tell you, um, Jim has a phenomenal sense of humor. And yesterday, we got to try that out with my interculture communication class. Where's my interculture communication class? Uh, we got to try it out, and um, I told my class that he would be evaluating me for my third year of teaching here, and then he walked into class, and he sat there, and then he started just spinning in his chair and making uh, annoying gestures and things. And then he interrupted me in the middle of my, uh, of my class, and um, we had a couple people in tears in the class, so it's phenomenal. Well done, Jim. Well, I'm just curious about how many people we can get in tears here this morning. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get some. All right, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, where home is. I mean, I, we know that Colorado, but just tell us a little bit just in, in, in broad terms. Like, who is Jim Yost? That's a good question. Sometimes I wonder. Uh, I'm from Colorado originally, and... Uh, Right now, I'm living up on a mountain, as far from people as I can get. Our nearest neighbor is about eight miles away, and that's a little too close. Uh, I intentionally let my road deteriorate so nobody wants to come visit us. Uh, it doesn't work. We're in Colorado. People want to come to Colorado, right? So uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, I started out uh, at Northwestern, really, where I got interested in anthropology. Okay, as you're talking about that, when you say Northwestern, you've made a couple comments about Northwestern not being what it is today. We were walking around the auditorium and you looked at this and you... Yeah, as we came into these buildings, uh, coming from a tribe where the fanciest building's gonna have some leaves for a roof, dirt floor, and so on, uh, it uh, feels a little bit weird here. Uh, I kept wondering if God was gonna strike me down for being in a place like this. Uh, it's just, it's too much, guys. Uh, the, uh, when we came to Northwestern College, uh, I came in 1960. Uh, one building was the only thing that was there. Uh, and there's some really, to, you know, this is overwhelming. Uh, but you know, there's, there's something about Northwestern College that was more than the facilities. We had around 300 students. Uh, 
But the essence of the college then was the people there, the faculty, the staff, the students. And I'm assuming, in spite of how different everything looks, it's still the same here. Uh, I'm sure hoping it is. So how, okay, so you became a pretty well-known anthropologist. I mean, I'm, I'm reading about you in books right now. So you became a pretty well-known anthropologist. I, I have a kind of a double question. How did Northwestern shape you for that? And my follow-up question, did you set out to be like a famous person? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's my only goal in life. Uh, <laughs> I, I have never had an interest in career or career building. I had one interest, and that was to serve Christ. You know, I started out as a senior in high school. I finally decided I would go to college uh, in April. And uh, I wrote three colleges, and they basically said, what's wrong with you? Um, two of the colleges accepted me and said, uh, uh, come back next year, and we'll give you, you know, we'll give you a scholarship, but we're, we're full this year. Northwestern needed students bad. Uh, <laughs> so they accepted me. Uh, I showed up here, and my goal in life at that point, as I said, as a senior, I decided I want to be a missionary. And I, there's a long story behind that. Uh, and uh, I thought... You know, I'm just going to go down somewhere and save the world. Uh, somebody said, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to go to school first. And I thought, well, come on. Um, ten years later, <laughs> I thought I'd come to Northwestern, spend a year, and then go be a missionary, you know, do my thing. Totally ill-prepared. Really dumb, as a matter of fact. Uh, ten years later, finally made it to the field. All along the way, it was, now, would you finish at Northwestern? Well, okay. Uh, we need you. And then I decided I wanted to go. By the way, I'll be talking about SIL. SIL stands for Summer Institute of Linguistics. That's the academic and field uh, entity of Wycliffe Bible Translators. So I decided I wanted to go join SIL and uh, found out just having a degree, a four-year degree, wasn't going to cut it for them. They said, uh, you've got a background in anthropology. By the way, I, uh, I, I grew up just, you know, all I could think about was Indians uh, and Egypt and uh, archaeology and things like that, uh, surrounded by the mountains and uh, finding artifacts everywhere I looked. Uh, so there was an interest that was being groomed there. When I got to college, the very first week, George Jennings gave a series of lectures on prehistory. That was it. I thought, what is anthropology? I'm all in. When I decided to go to, with uh, SIL, uh, I decided I wanted to be a translator, a Bible translator. Took the training, taught for SIL, <laughs> and... Uh, SIL said, uh, by the way, you've got a uh, background in anthropology. Why don't you go ahead and get a master's in anthropology? All right, another two years. Uh, now, why don't you go ahead and get a doctorate in anthropology? Oh, come on. You know, I'm, I'm anxious to get out there and save people. Well, 
Long story short, uh, I ended up going into anthropology, kicking and screaming, uh, and loved it. Okay, so let's, let's move into that because that's, that's a really interesting part of your story. Um, in 1956, five missionaries were killed um, by the Guarani in Ecuador. And uh, so this was, a, this was a, a, a moment, a pretty big moment in kind of in history for, of missions. A lot of people reference back to that moment. So uh, the Guarani were very not, not very well known at the time, but then you got to go and live among the Waurani, that same tribe that killed those five missionaries. So tell us a little bit about that journey to getting to the Waurani in Ecuador. Well, first, I was very naive, still am. Uh, the, uh, I didn't know much about the Waurani at all. I was at SIL one summer uh, teaching, and uh, uh, I, uh, I heard about them. You know, it was the first time, uh, in fact, uh, was Roger Udarian had gone there. He was a graduate. I remember his picture hanging in the hall there at Northwestern, but it never registered with me. Um, and uh, when I wrote to SIL and said, okay, um, I've got my doctorate. I'm ready to go wherever you sign me. Uh, just don't sign me. And I named some places I didn't want to go. <laughs> That's a mistake. Uh, they, uh, in the same board meeting, when I applied to be assigned, they got a request, almost a demand, from, from the Ecuadorian government to have an anthropologist come down and study the Walgrani. Uh, they said, okay, you've got a year, or SIL told me, you've got a year, go down, learn the language, and, and write up a, a cultural study. Did you learn the language in a year? Huh. Uh, I had studied eight or ten languages up to that point, and I'd never run into anything like that. I mean, it, everything from the sounds to the semantics were totally baffling. Uh, at the end of the year, yeah, I was getting into the language pretty well, but still, I had a long ways to go. And I also, unfortunately, maybe, I fell in love with the people. And uh, as I thought about, I've got to leave here in a year, at the end of that year, I thought, there's no way, number one, that I can leave these people. They are right on the cusp of being overwhelmed by the national culture, of being thrust into an international firestorm, if you will. Uh, I can't, in good conscience, leave them. So here it is, 50 years later, and I'm still working with the Walgrani after my one-year assignment. Uh, I was supposed to go, uh, you know, there's a country just to the north of Ecuador. Uh, some people have never heard of it. It's called Colombia. Uh, <laughs> well played, well played, Jim. Uh, and I, that's where I was actually originally assigned to go. Never made it. <laughs> that's too bad. You yeah. could have done a lot of good there. Well. <laughs> okay, so um, I, do you guys want to learn a little Waurani? The, the language. All right. You want to teach us something? How do you say hi in Waurani? Waurani? Wait, what do, you, what do you mean? What is that supposed to mean? They don't have greetings. You just show up. Well, that's disappointing. I mean, I always say hi to people all the time. So what, you just show up? Yeah. I mean, what else do you need to do? 
I guess so. You know, it was interesting because uh, I would go to a new village where I'd never been before. And when I would arrive at the village, I would stand outside with, with my Wawarani friends. And the people in the village, well, they'd see we were there. They would totally ignore us. No one would come talk to us. And it would take sometimes an hour, even if we were visiting some, my friend's father and his house. We'd just stand there and wait. And when somebody brought us drink, then we started talking like we'd been there forever. So, well, actually what they're doing is they're sending somebody out to go check, make sure we haven't got weapons or enemies hidden someplace uh, to make sure that it was safe for us to come on in. So the Waurani are probably one of the things that makes them famous or, uh, you know, infamous. I don't know what, what you want to call it. Uh, so I have a two Two, two uh, part question. One is the name that's used of them is usually Auka, uh, but that's not a good name. But the second thing is there's a lot of violence in, within the group. So tell us about the characterization, the Auka name, and about the violence, because that's, that was a, kind of a, a, a barrier to you being able to work <laughs> with them. Yeah, the name, by the way, they have, they've been called, and it bothers me to even say it, Auka. Uh, a lot of publications about it and so on. That's a very, very derogatory term. It means savage, barbarian, non-human, uh, slave. Used, it's what's used by surrounding tribes around there of the Wawrani. The Wawrani never heard of the Alcas until they had contact with the outside world. They call themselves Wawmuni. Waw, a person is Waw. And by the way, you hear that at the end? That you, that's part of the language. And I was just counting up. There are six, 16 different ways of spelling the name for themselves. That's because nobody can hear the language the way it's actually spoken. Um, but uh, tell me again the question. I think I forgot the question, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> uh, about the... Violence as part oh, violence. of the okay. culture. Yeah, I mean, the Wawrani had the highest rate of homicide ever recorded in the history of man. When all is said and done, if you took split this audience right down the middle, when it's all said and done, this half would have killed that half. 50% of all deaths in the last five generations. You know, some of you are saying, yeah, well, never mind. This half would have killed that half. Uh, 50% of all deaths in the last five generations were homicides. It pitted friend against friend. They don't, by the way, they don't have word for friend because you're either a relative or you're an enemy. Relative against relative. The only way we could live there was to become part of the kinship system. Uh, the day I arrived, there was a couple of missionary women who had been doing translation, um, and there was an airstrip that they could, they could fly in and out of. I arrived, I had crushed my hand on the way down, so I had a cast that went from my fingers clear up to my elbow. And one of the old men came up to me, and he says, uh, hmm, you have a bad hand. My brother has a bad hand. I'll tell you my brother, give me your shirt. Suddenly, 
I was introduced to the concept of obligations and rights. He knew all my obligations, his rights, and I didn't know any of them. And fortunately, an older woman came up to him and said, no, wait a minute, Vippy. You've got several wives. You've got children who can chop and plant for you, help keep you, feed you, and so on. I am a widow. So I'll call him my brother. So I got the name Larika. Uh, and that made me acceptable within the tribe. Uh, again, um, the violence permeated every aspect of their life. I don't care where we were, what we were doing, they talked about previous killings. So one of the interesting things that I found, even, even in communication, like even verbal communication, that comes out with the tone of voice or how loud you talk or how soft you talk, that had to do with violence. Tell, tell us about that. I was with a friend... An anthropologist came in to visit me one time. We were in a remote village. And uh, when the wild riding talk, they talk loud all the time. And it's, you know, conversation going from here over to there and back and forth and so on. Everybody's talking at once, and it's pandemonium. To hear silence when people were present was almost unheard of. Well, this anthropologist was visiting me, and there was a fiesta going on, a lot of, a lot of fun and hilarity and so on. And he and I were sitting there making, you know, astute anthropological observations and just chatting. And suddenly it got very quiet. Somebody walked up to me and he said, uh, Warika, who are you guys going to kill? Silence not talking where everybody can hear you, you only did that if you were plotting to kill somebody. You wanted everybody to know exactly what you were doing and what you were thinking. So you don't talk softly. That's a bad deal. You don't whisper for sure. Okay, so one of the concepts that you uh, have talked about is the missions, mission of presence. And that's an interesting concept. You talked about it in the video. So tell us, what is this mission of presence? What, what do you mean by that? What, why is that important? Let me give you an example. A 10-year-old boy would far prefer to have his dad be present than to get a present from his dad. An aging woman in assisted living center would far, far rather have her daughter come visit and be present than to have her just send her a present. The mission of presence rather than giving a present is critical. It means identifying with people. It means being where they are, knowing what they feel, knowing their hurts, their joys, and feeding those in a way that Christ would. It means not coming in with my program, my project, my expectations, but finding theirs and living within theirs instead of imposing something on them that means nothing. Okay, so let's get really, really practical because I think people think of anthropology as something that they do out, you know, in the Amazon jungle of Colombia. No one's ever heard of Colombia, right? Yeah, right. Um, 
they, they think about it something that's out there. So what does the mission of presence mean in, like for a roommate, uh, a friend, a situationship, whatever, whatever's going on? Um, what, what does the, what? It just said situationship, what's, what's wrong? These people, I don't, situationship, okay, yeah. Uh, what, how does the mission of presence help us engage with people around us? It's gonna be hard to explain because these guys aren't listening to you at all. Uh, the, uh, think about the incarnation. Jesus with us, God with us. If that doesn't mean something to you, you're not gonna have a very easy time understanding what the mission of presence is. It, it should penetrate all aspects of our relationship with every other person. If we can't identify with what you need rather than what I want you to need, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to create barriers between us. And that applies, like you said, with people that we know very well. Somebody we meet on the street and have a brief encounter with, it applies to them. They're for strangers. Big deal. They deserve our full attention, which means our full love as much as anybody else. So the mission of presence and the incarnation, <clears throat> Jesus coming and being Emmanuel, God with us, kind of go hand in hand. And um, how have you seen that play out in your life? I mean, what, how, what does the mission of presence mean for you? And among the white Ani, you were, you were there. What is, how, does that, how did that play out? You know, we were sent there. Uh, I was assigned there. As essentially a governmental decree to go study the Waograni. I was not to, to uh, preach and I wasn't to form a church. That was you know, outside my purview. So I didn't. I identified with people, I did what they did. I hunted, I fished, I uh, visited, I uh, talked, I sang. Whatever they did, I did it with them. Years later, I went back to visit and uh, immediately they said, you came to teach us about God. I thought, where'd they get that? They saw the model of my wife, myself, and my kids. And from that, they saw God. Now, I'm not perfect by any means, but I was flabbergasted. I'm going to tell you something that you may be bothered by. I, Kathy would, had not been back for several years. We went back to a village together, and one of the little girls, well, girl, she was a teenager by then, she came up and she said, Warika, uh, is that Vida? Is that your wife? I said, yeah. She said, well, you know, I'm alive today because of her. I said, what do you mean? She said, when we first came to where you were living in the village of Tewano, my mother was very stressed when I was born. She didn't have any milk to nurse me for several days. Vida took me and nursed me, kept me alive. 
How many American women would find that disgusting? Kathy, had I... <coughs> Sorry. Yeah, it moves me. She had identified with her in a way that nobody else could. That's the mission of presence. Yes, that's super powerful. Um, Jim, all these students are sitting here, and you were once one of these students. What would you tell yourself? Sitting in a chapel, what would you have said to yourself? <laughs> you know, I was out there <clears throat> when I was there. I wasn't paying very much attention. Uh, and if, if I had it to do over, the thing I would focus on now is trying to learn to have a better understanding, a better knowledge, and a better closeness with God rather than being so focused on myself. I learned some hard lessons for a long time before I ever learned what the mission of presence could be. All right, shameless plug tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. in Nas Hall. Um, I'm going to be interviewing um, Jim on, the, and the topic is going to be what an anthropologist has to teach us about um, following Jesus in a deep way. But I want to kind of close this time uh, with a selfie. Do you mind if we take a selfie? Just, you know, it's, just very, it's a very cultural thing that we do here. I just want to get a selfie with the students because these guys are kind of good looking. And um, some of them are. And so I thought... <sighs> You guys, I don't know. So why don't we get a selfie, Jim, here. I've heard you guys ready for a selfie? Yeah. All right, everyone, everyone look really good. This is the best view of him you're this ever going to get. This is the best view. All right, let's stand over here. All right, you guys looking? Oh, you guys don't look that good. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hey, guys, uh, please thank me. Uh, help me thank Dr. Jim Yost. Hey, let me end with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for uh, your love for all people in all places. The Waurani, you love the Waurani, you love us. And we thank you so much that you have sent your son to die on the cross so that we can all experience salvation through you. And that every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gets to hear that message. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>